Welcome to Hollywood Obsessed with Tony Miros, a podcast that celebrates our endless fascination with the iconic people, locations, and history of the entertainment capital of the world. If you're as obsessed with Hollywood as Tony is, or would like to be, get ready to enjoy another exciting, brand new episode of Hollywood Obsessed. Now, here's your host, Tony Miros. Hello, friends. This is your host, Tony Miros, speaking to you from the heart of Tinseltown. On this episode of Hollywood Obsessed, part two of my conversation with the incredible Perry King, who's best known for starring on the hit 1980s TV detective series, Riptide. Throughout his 50-year career, he has starred in over 85 films, TV shows, and miniseries. After graduating from Yale with a BA in theater, he headed for New York with a scholarship from the Juilliard School. He made his movie debut in the 1972 film Slaughterhouse-Five. After that, he appeared in dozens of feature films throughout the 1970s, including The Possession of Joel Delaney with Shirley MacLaine, The Lords of Flatbush with Sylvester Stallone, The Wild Party with Raquel Welsh, and the cult classic film Andy Warhol's Bad with Carol Baker. On television, he played Valerie Bertinelli's wealthy father in the CBS miniseries I'll Take Manhattan the complex Peter Pulitzer in Roxanne the Prize Pulitzer with China Phillips, and the television adaptation of Sidney Sheldon's novel A Stranger in the Mirror alongside actress Lori Loughlin. In 1984, he landed the role of Cody Allen on the hit TV series Riptide, which he starred on for three seasons. After the series ended, he went on to play the role of Haley Armstrong on the hit Fox primetime soap opera Melrose Place, and he made numerous guest appearances throughout the 1990s on hit TV shows like Spin City, Will and Grace, Big Love, Brothers and Sisters, and Cold Case, to name a few. His most recent project was the independent film The Divide, in which he directed and played the lead role, and was the winner of 14 film festival awards. Now that you know a little bit more about Perry's extraordinary career, let's continue with the second half of my conversation with him on this episode of Hollywood Obsessed. Perry, I read that you auditioned for the role of Han Solo in Star Wars. Yes, I did. Yeah. What yeah. was that I'm like? George Lucas. I, I remember going to one of those dingy little office rooms in Paramount. I don't know if you know Paramount Studios, but they have all these office buildings that are basically unchanged since the 20s. Yeah. Wood paneled, but kind of dirty and shabby. And it was one of those meetings you know and i was sitting and at the time remember nobody knew star wars nobody knew anything about it it was yeah. just he was making a movie and i said so tell me what's the movie about he wanted to meet with me and he said well i'm making a movie for kids and i remember thinking oh crap i i don't want to be in a movie for kids <laughs> <laughs> but he said and this became a, a line that he used all the time. I'd never heard it before. Maybe he used it before that. But but I was certainly one of the first people to hear this line. He said, for kids between the ages of 8 and 80. In other words, the oh, kids. Oh, okay. Right? And I did. So then I did a screen test with Charlie Martin Smith. You know who that is? Charlie oh, you Martin did Smith? a screen test for Hans. Yeah, yeah, I didn't I know did that. a okay. screen test. And with Charlie Martin Smith, and I remember one of the things he did, Lucas did in the screen test was instead of reversing the camera mm -hmm. and keeping the actors where they were and turning the camera around to save time, he turned the actors around. 
Oh. And I remember being very confused by that and, and, and sort of lost and thinking, God, this guy will be hard to work with because he's, it made sense what he's doing, but it sure left me out in the cold. You know, <laughs> anyway, so years later, not too long ago, they sent me the audition, the tape of that, of that screen test. Oh, wow. They, said they were doing a new release of Star Wars and they wanted special, special, uh, um, whatever you call it. You Behind know, the, the scenes stuff, right? Yeah. yeah, the special stuff that they show on those kinds of things. And they said, so we want to show auditions of well-known actors who didn't get the part. Mm-hmm. Will you look at this audition and, and tell us if you're willing to let us use it? And I watched it and I thought, holy crap, no wonder I didn't get the part. <laughs> I was terrible. <laughs> I was just awful in this. I missed the point completely. I mean, remember, nobody knew anything about it. So, but now that I knew the film, I realized, of course he didn't. I'm, I wonder, he probably didn't watch 10 seconds of that audition because <laughs> it was hopeless. It was terrible. Charlie Martin Smith was pretty good, but I was, but you know, I got to play the part. I'm only, I'm, I'm the second of three people have, who have ever played the part of Han Solo because I did it on Star Wars, on, um, excuse me, on uh, National Public Radio. You did the radio version, right? Yeah. National Public Radio did an amazing thing, all with the support of George Lucas. He gave him the rights to do the whole thing for one dollar or something, just as a gift to National Public Radio. And we, we did all three of those first three films all together. I think we did something like 16 hours of radio. Wow. A play, and you wouldn't think that Star Wars could possibly work on radio, but it worked beautifully. Ben Burt gave us all his sound effects, you know, like, mm-hmm. like Chewbacca. I had lots of scenes as Han Solo with Chewbacca, with Chewie. Sure. To the point that every once in a while you do something as an actor that really enters you and becomes part of your personal life. And to this day, I feel like Chewie is a personal friend because I did lots of scenes where they're going to add in that that sound of Chewie responding. And Chewie's sounds were... Ben Burt, the sound, the brilliant sound man of Star Wars, made he used sounds from a yak and a camel and and all kinds of weird things put together to make Chewie's responses. Yeah, because che- Chewbacca is talking a language; it's just we right. can't understand it, but Han can understand it, right? Yeah. So I did lots of scenes all alone in a glass booth, saying, "Hey, Chewie, what do you think? What are we going to do about this?" <laughs> And then long pause, 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 where I leave them space to put in Chewie's response. And then I say, oh, okay, Chewie, that sounds great. Let's go. Well, to do that as an actor, you got to really believe the other guy is there. It's like doing a phone conversation on film. You never hear the other side of the phone conversation. You got to hear it in your head and you got to respond to it. Like, it's you know, that's method acting. It's acting 101, right? So I spent so much time talking to Chewie all by myself that he's a very real, he's a personal friend at this point, you know? I I knew him very well. I knew just what he liked and didn't like and wanted to do and didn't want to do and how to talk him into doing something he doesn't want to do and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, yeah, I'm very proud of that, that I got, I finally got to play the part, but only on radio. I love that, Perry. I'm going to have to listen to those. Yeah, they're good. I'm telling you, they are really good. Shockingly good. You would not think. You know who did it? The director was John Madden. And John Madden did Shakespeare in Love, among many others. Yeah, I know. Wonderful director. 
and Mark Hamill was in it. Tony Daniels, who plays C-3PO. Tony would always get stuck in a separate glass booth because they had to put an effect on his voice. So, Mm -hmm. Tony, you know, C-3PO, Master Luke, Master Luke. I say, excuse me, Master Luke. You know, and he'd be all alone. The poor guy all day long alone in a glass booth. I always felt so badly for Tony Daniels because he's in just about the most famous movie made in the history of movies. And he gets no mileage out of it because he's in a gold, gold suit the whole time. Yeah, like, nobody sees him. I never know. got any, any career bump from that at all because <laughs> his face is covered up, you know? Well, it's actually pretty much where we're headed with AI. I think we're all going to be in the same boat. <laughs> we're not going to go there now, Perry. <laughs> well, it's, How it's, did uh, Cody Allen get into your life? How did Riptide come to your life? Uh, I had decided that I wanted to, if I could, because, you know, one of the things that people don't understand about an acting career, and you may understand it, but but most people do not understand this at all. They always talk about the work. The mm-hmm. work on screen, on a set, on stage. I've done a lot of stage. I've been on Broadway. All that, that's the vacation. The job of being an actor is auditions. Yeah. And the hard thing to understand about auditions, and I try to teach young people this at a wonderful acting school called the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and mm. occasionally go over there and talk to the kids and say, I've been doing what you want to do for half a century now, and I will answer anything you want to ask me as truthfully as I can. You know, and they always want to ask about auditions. And what I try to teach them is this auditioning for a part and playing the part have almost nothing to do with each other. Nothing at all. The way you successfully audition for something will not inform your playing the part and vice versa. You, the audition is selling yourself. Mm-hmm. I hate to make this analogy, but it fits, I think. You're, you're really like a hooker walking down the street in hot pants, and you're trying to walk in such a way and ask the potential John if he's got a match in such a way that he thinks you're the one and none of the others are right and you're up against hundreds or thousands of people every time right so I decided and so even though it looks like I worked a lot for me most of my career was hoping and waiting for the next gig sure and I thought if I could get something that would make me work so much for so long I could finally maybe get good, you know? Oh, you didn't think you were good up to that? Oh, I still don't think I'm good. I think I'm very mediocre. I don't think I'm bad, but I am. And I, this is a very accurate appraisal of myself because I, you know, that's what you got to do. You got to be honest and, and, and objective about yourself. I'm always good. I'm always fine. But to be better than that is almost impossible for me without a lot of help. And the one exception in my mind, I know we're going to talk about it later, is that movie, The Divide. Yeah. Um, and and it's for a very specific reason that I was able to break through and actually work to the level that I've always wanted to work. Mm. Um, but in Riptide, I thought if I could get a, a, I did several pilots over the years for series. Yeah. But, and nothing ever clicked. But I thought if I could do a series for a few years and just 12, 14 hours a day on camera all day. So I could get to the place where there was really no difference for me 
between being on camera and off camera. Yeah. You, you just said we're both looking at each other on 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 film right now on on Zoom. You could see me and you said I'm comfortable being on camera. It's true. I finally got comfortable with the camera looking at me because of Riptide. And that's what I wanted to do. And it was a real fight to to win that part. I remember I, I did a screen test. I did auditions in front of the network. I did a screen test hmm. and and gave it my heart and soul. And then after that, after about a week, the network came and said, we want to see you again. Come in and audition for us again and read for us again. And I did something very dangerous that worked, but it was dangerous. I said, no. Oh, I said, you said no. I said, no. I said, you've got my screen test. That's the best I can do. If you don't want me, that's fine. But I'm not going to go through that anymore. I've given yeah. you the best I got to offer. You pick. And they picked me. I, I called their bluff. Because wow. they, they, the whole auditioning process, and I've been through it for 50 years, and I've also been on the other side often, where yeah. I'm watching the auditions and part of the process. And a few times I've had uh, shows where I was the lead, and they and they have me audition with people. So I've seen it from every angle. Mm-hmm. And it's just horrible and brutal and mean and demeaning. And, and it's not accidental that it's demeaning. They want to grind you down to paste because they don't want to pay you much. So when they finally say yes to you, they want you to grab at it no matter what number they put. Right, right. So it is it is a brutal process. Oh, it's horrible. It's it's um, and there's so many people that have to say yes because they all feel like they have they have to put their two cents in. So it becomes such of a hassle. I know. But I love the chemistry that you had with Tom and Joe on the show. Yeah. I mean, was that because you had worked so much together or did you have rehearsal time to get to know each other? Like even in the pilot, you seem to really be chummy with everybody. So how did that happen with the three? Well, of you? to some degree, that kind of on-screen chemistry, whether you have it or you don't have it with somebody, it's, it's, it's ineffable. You know, you can't put words to it. And when they cast things, they often miss that and they, and there's no explaining that stuff. So we were lucky that we all felt like we fit together. But we also worked very hard at it. So hard, in fact, that to this day, we're still, the three of us are still excellent friends with each other. Oh, Joe Penny and Tom Bray are two of the finest people I've ever known. And I talk to them and text with them and see them. Joey and I have lunch periodically together and stuff. Uh, we, we, we're good friends. Um, Joe, for example, I, if somebody wants me to tell them about Joe Penny, I say, look, here's the truth about Joe Penny, the bottom line about Joe Penny. I don't like that phrase, but that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, is if I didn't talk to him and see him for 20 years and I called him out of the blue and I said, Joe, I'm in trouble. I need you. He'd say, where are you? Here I come. That's great. Right away. That's great. You can't. Well, I, I assume you're Italian. Is that accurate? No, I'm Puerto Rican. Puerto Rican. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought, well, my mistake. But that's okay. that's a, that's a <laughs> Most very people fun. think I'm Italian. Yeah. But that's a that's a that's an Italian trait, I think. Tremendous loyalty and friendship. Absolutely. I agree. You know, Italians are so famous for that. And Joe's got it in spades. And Tom, Tommy, same thing, you know. We we uh <laughs> I just remembered we got together, I don't know, 10 years or so ago, having dinner. Tom was in town and we all three were eating lunch and we said, you know what? We're all three kind of always, always out of work. Um, 
why don't we go to the network? I'll bet that we, we, we thought we could sell a reunion show. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, I would think you would do a reunion. Sure. Yeah, that would make sense. We thought, well, great. Why not do that? So we went to one of our agents and we set it up and they went to the network and the network said, no, we don't want to see that. No way. That's what I mean. Acting is so brutal. It's so hard on your ego. One, one day, years ago, I was reading the breakdowns. The breakdowns are where you can see what's shooting in a synopsis of the movie of the week or whatever it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. I read this breakdown for a movie of the week they were going to shoot. And it was an interesting sounding story. And the lead character was described as a Perry King type. Right? Oh, okay. And I thought, wow, great. So I called up the casting person and I said, hi, I'm Perry King. <laughs> but I assumed, you know, is mine for the asking. I mean, it says a Perry King type. And she said, oh, she said, no, I'm sorry. You're too old. We want a Perry King type, but you're too old. <laughs> So you could you could just never predict where the slings and arrows of Miss. Oh my! Yeah, you really have to have you have to have a lot of shielding. You have to have tough skin to be in this business. You really do. What you got to learn how to do, I think, because it's doable, but it's hard to do, is you got to forget about everything every day. So when I go, I used to go to auditions, and then I call my agent and say, "What have you heard? What have you heard? What have you heard?" And then finally, I'd say, well, they say, well, obviously, they don't want you because they haven't called us. I said, well, at least call them back and get feedback so I can learn. Right. Sure. And I get feedback like you're too tall. You're too short. You're too fat. You're too thin. You're too old. You're too young. All this crap. All of, I finally dawned to me. All that stuff really means is they don't want you. <laughs> That's all it means. They want somebody else and not you. So yeah. eat it. So what I realized I started doing and this helped me so much. I started, the moment I walked out of an audition, I erased it from my head. The script, everything I'd learned, the whole thing. So an hour later, if you said to me, how did that audition go? I would literally, without joking, say, what audition? I wouldn't remember it. I erased it because it's just better. Just keep going. That's smart. Yeah, that's smart. Chugging on, you know. I want to touch on one more television role before we get to the divide because I loved it. We will have to talk about that. I want to talk about Melrose Place because, Mm -hmm. wow, your role, Haley Armstrong, was Brooke's father who falls in love with Allison and whose Allison was her ex-boyfriend, was Brooke's new husband. And then you died in a boating accident after marrying Allison. So that's a lot of drama. But how did Melrose Place, how was that, was that like that experience on Melrose? Well, um, uh, geez, old age. (laughs) <laughs> I, I hate this when it happens. The producer, uh, Aaron Spelling. Yes. Aaron was one of the greatest people you could work for. I'm not sure I liked a lot of Aaron's product necessarily, but he was wonderful. He had been an actor and he really loved actors, which is very unusual. Most producers hate actors. And I honestly can't blame him for the most part. <laughs> Who wouldn't, right? But but um, Aaron loved actors, and he would listen to you, and he cared about you, and he'd he'd pay you well, and he'd help you, and and Aaron asked me to do that. It was that simple. He asked me to be in Melrose Place. He also asked me to do the Titans, which was the last big thing he ever did, which yeah. was a flop, but really not his fault. The network ruined that. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, Aaron, you know, I would do like a lot of people in Hollywood when Aaron was alive and, and producing and active, 
I would do anything he asked because I, I loved him so much. We used to talk about being a father. I have two daughters and he has a daughter and had yeah. a daughter. And, uh, I don't know whether you said, because of course she's still, I guess you'd say he has a daughter, but he's gone now. I don't but know. Yeah. He had a daughter. Yeah. And, and yeah. a son as well. Yeah. Yes. And a son, but he and I both discussed, we would discuss at length good parenting toward a daughter. It's mm. hard to know. I think always has been hard to know for fathers how to be the best father you can be. Yeah. Uh, particularly in the modern age, you know, and she wanted to be an actress and he was very worried about that. And I couldn't blame him because I wouldn't often wish my profession on an enemy. Yeah. Both of my daughters at different times, they're 22 years apart by different mothers. And, uh, and neither one is an actress and both of them around the age of, I don't know, 15, 16, came to me and said, Dad, I know what I want to do. I want to be an actress. Yeah. And so I use the power of, of the parent. A lot of people don't understand, I don't think, where your power as a parent comes from. It comes from reverse psychology. Uh-huh. So I thought, I'm going to challenge their <laughs> supposed excitement and love about being uh, an actor. And... If they really want to be an actor, nothing will stop them. And if nothing will stop them, then I'll help them every way I can, for real. But initially, I wanted to challenge it and see if it was vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say to them, when, when each of them I did this with, and they know, I, I'm not telling a, a, a tale out of school. They both know that this is what I did later. But when they said, I want to be an actor, I said, fantastic. Oh, my God, that's so wonderful. Oh, I'm so excited God, that's fun. Here, read all these books about Stanislavski and method acting. And look, here are these plays, and we'll do scenes every day. We'll work on scenes. And of course, in both cases, their eyes started to roll in their heads. <laughs> it ruined it. Dad's excitement ruined it. And I thought, perfect. If I can ruin it that easily, then I don't want him coming near it. Because the only thing that sustains you most of the time as an actor is your absolute till death do his part commitment to it yeah you know people that say i'm gonna give it a couple years that's gonna fail that always fails you can't do that you gotta it's got to come well the best i saw an an interview with with mark uh with uh shit old age again with uh ben affleck and matt damon Uh he was doing an interview with uh chris wallace Okay. Who's a really good interviewer? Yeah, and and Chris Wallace asked him about the night he won the Oscar, and supposedly he ended up alone at three or four in the morning, holding this Oscar in his hand, alone in a room. And Matt Damon said the most wonderful thing. I kind of memorized it as he said it. He said, "At that point, twenty-seven years old, I've just I've just received the greatest prize out of left field that anybody could possibly dream of in life." I'm a young man and I've got the Oscar in my hand. And I, and he was, he said he was sitting there still feeling empty and lost and what next and who am I and what do I do? And he said, that settles it. That proves it. Nothing from the outside. These are his words. He said, nothing from the outside can ever feed your soul. Mm. What feeds your soul, and those are his words, has to come from inside you. And he said, from that moment on, I realized None of that stuff means anything. Fame, fortune, money, all the stuff that he's gotten in spades and deserves completely. That's not what feeds him. What feeds him is, he said, the work. That's what he cares about. It's the work. 
And that's the truth, you know. Anyway, like- to go back to Melrose Place. So I did that show, and I will admit to you, and I'm not proud of this, but I never could figure that show out. I couldn't keep track <laughs> of the characters. I couldn't keep track of who was who and who was sleeping with who and what was happening and blah, 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 and all this stuff. So I just kind of showed up, and and that show was set by that point that I came on it. It was such a uh, a well-oiled machine. You got there. If you said your words right, that was a print, and they moved on. You could say to them, you'd show up in the morning, and you'd say, what time are we going to wrap today? And they'd say, oh, we'll wrap it about 6.51. And they were right. Now, I've never been on a set like that, but they knew because they could crank it out. If you did a scene and you were in the middle of the scene, you thought, oh, my God, I'm really bad right now. This is not working. You better forget your words because... That's the only way to get them to do another take. <laughs> so anyway, I really don't know anything about that show. I only know that um, that the girl played. Oh, what's her name? She's on Sex in the City. Um, Kristen. Kristen. Kristen uh, Davis. Yeah. She was so sweet. She was the sweetest person on the set. So if I wasn't busy and she was around willing to talk, I would talk to her. Otherwise, I just kind of showed up and. It was so funny on that set. The front box on a camera. This is back in the days of Panavision and shooting film, of course. Yeah. The front box, there's always a little wooden box stuck on the front of those big Panavision cameras. And they had lenses and maybe a viewfinder and mm-hmm. and some some uh, uh, accoutrements that the uh, the cameraman would need, right? Well, the lens box, the, the, the front box on a camera on Melrose Place was filled with gum and Banaka, because <laughs> that show, you either were yelling at somebody or you kissed him. It was one of the two. Often you'd yell and then you'd kiss him, or you'd kiss him and then you'd yell, you know? But that's what that show consisted of, as far as I was concerned. So right before a scene, we'd all go, squirt ourselves so we wouldn't offend the other person too greatly. I love that. I love that. I want to talk about the divide, which I loved. I thought it was well written, well directed. It was a beautiful. It was shot beautifully, Perry. Yeah, the the film that my cameraman Russ Rayburn really came. He he just came through so well for me. I swear to you, that film, in my opinion, looks better than the one who won the Oscar for Best Cinematography, Mank. Mank, well, Mank was, was a great film, too. Photography, yeah. And it looks good, Mank, but I tell you, the divide looks better than that. It's it the divide is, I always wanted to make my own movie, and I finally got to do it. And how I did made that it. come about? How did that, how did you find well, this film? There was only one way to do it in the end, and that was pay for it myself. It couldn't be done otherwise, because I, I could find funding for it, but everybody would always say, yeah, I want, I want to fund your film, and, but Here's the thing I wanted, for example, I, the first thing everybody would say is it's got to be in color because you can't merchandise a black and white film very effectively. They just yeah. don't make money, you know, but yeah. I was going to make a black and white film. I love black and white. John Ford, the great John Ford said, black and white photography is real photography and everything mm-hmm. else isn't. And uh, so this is going to be a black and white film. So people would say, I'll, I'll fund your film, but it's got to be in color. And I said, it's not going to be in color. And they say, well, then I won't give you the money. And I said, well, okay, so be it. But it's going to be a black and white film, not, not in color. And they'd always say, well, I want a film that has violence. 
it's got to be a right. gunfight or something. And I'd say, no, this is not that film. That's not the film I want to make. And it's a film that needs to have nudity and a sex scene. Mm-hmm. Say same thing. Nope, not this film. As you know, having seen it, the sexiest thing that happens in the movie is two people hug. That's right. Personally, I think that scene is so sexy because we've been watching these two characters get closer and closer mm-hmm. and you don't really see them clearly. You just see their silhouette. Mm-hmm. And when the silhouette comes together, to me, that's sexy. But you know, it looked it looked gorgeous and the acting was great. And uh, where did the script come from? Did now, you know that? Now, listen, I, I know, Tony, that it has a lot of flaws. And almost all of them are my fault because that was my first time directing. If I did it again, I'd change a lot of things. But here's the thing that was so satisfying to me about that film was it's the film that the writer, Jana Brown, who was my partner in it, she wrote it. I just helped her, but she wrote it. And it's the film that she and I and Russ Raver, that was the film we meant to make, flaws or not. That is the film. I've never had that feeling before with anything I ever did before that that's what we meant, you know, and that was so satisfying. And the reason I said to you that I feel my work in the divide is the best acting I've ever done is because I was so busy doing the directing side of it and the producing side of it and Mm -hmm. all the others that I didn't have time to think about the character. I had like two years of prep to think about that character and get ready for him and learn about Alzheimer's, which is a central part of the story. Yep. And I spent a lot of research and time with people with Alzheimer's and at nursing homes and reading. Oh, you did. Oh, that's good. Oh, tons and tons, hundreds of hours of trying to evolve that. But when it came time to shoot, I had no time to think about it. I literally would say, okay, roll camera. And between roll camera and me saying action for myself, that's when I prepared. That was it. Wow. Go, go roll camera. And I literally would think of it as year, many years ago, I met Catherine Hepburn many, many years ago. She was very kind to me and she tried to help me get a part in something she was in because she'd known my grandparents who were, my grandfather was an editor in, in New York City, he edited Ernest Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald and mm-hmm. Very famous. Very, yeah. very famous. Yeah. And they lived beside each other, Catherine Hepburn and, and my grandfather, grandmother, and all of his daughters, my mother among them growing up there. Mm-hmm. So Catherine Hepburn knew that and she tried to help me get a part in something. And I wasn't good enough and I was too young and couldn't cut it. But she spent an afternoon with me in her house, helping me learn how to play this part. Right. Mm. And and she why was I telling you? Oh, hell. That's another piece of old age. What, <laughs> what you were doing about the divide. Yes. And, right. Here's, so this is what she said about acting. This is Catherine Hepburn's words, her description of acting. Because again, I memorized these when she said them, because I knew I didn't want to ever forget them. Her words. She said, here's how you do it. She said, you get a blanket idea of the character. You work off the other person and you throw yourself into the midst of the moment. Can't you just hear her saying that? I could, yes. You throw yourself into the midst of the moment. Right? <laughs> and I always, I love that. And I use that all the time. And that's what I would do in the divine. I'd say, roll camera. And then I'd literally throw myself into Sam, the old guy I was playing. 
and try to remember to say action, which I often would forget to do. <laughs> and and they'd all be standing there, and I'd realize I'd forgotten to say it. But and as a result, that character, I I did what actors call making the marriage, where the character, and this happened with Chico in the Lords of Flatbush too, where after a while you just there's no distance. You or him, he's you. Mm-hmm. It's all the same. I could so tell. Things would happen when when you make that. It's it's called being in the zone. Racers, I raced cars for twenty years, and mm-hmm. racers call it being in the zone. And 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 it's the same for acting. If you're really working well, every once in a while you're in the zone, and you can make no mistake, and everything works perfectly. Like one scene where I woke up at night, in the middle of the night, as I would every night, that old character, and go out to that barn. Yep. And I woke up, and we were shooting this. And I had set the shot wide enough, so I had plenty of latitude. And I got out of the bed, and the first thing I did was put on my hat. Now, that was not something I thought, oh, that would be great. That's what he would do. Mm-hmm. It just happened. It was the character. Just I'm in my underwear, and I got my cowboy hat, right? Because that yeah. old guy, that's what those guys do. The hat, Their hat is the most important thing they have, those guys. I know yeah. them. I've got a cattle ranch up in Northern California. I worked the, ca- the ranch with with cowboys you know and i know those guys those old guys and that's so important to them their hat you know there's things would happen on that set that i didn't think about well i want to talk to you about a certain scene that i really enjoyed watching it's just him he he's chopping he's he's taking off his beard with the scissor and then he's he's cutting his hair and he makes himself look nice because his daughter's in town and i just thought it was so wonderful because i was like He's really cutting his hair. He's really cutting the, the beard off of his. Absolutely. I loved that because it was so well, real, Perry. Yeah. Well, see, there's all kinds of things I always wanted to do in film, and I did a lot of them in that film. For example, I hate auditioning. So when I auditioned for that film, I only auditioned maybe a half a dozen people in that movie. That's it. I spent hundreds of hours literally looking at people on tape, on film things that they had, I wanted to treat them with the respect that I've always wanted from other people who were casting things, but you never get, you know, the, the casting person said to me, okay, we'll have people every 10 minutes, we'll bring in a new person. And I said, why, why so, so many and so often and so little time. And he said, well, after a day of that, you'll have a much better sense of what you want. And I said, I know what I want. I don't need to do that to those poor people. Why should I put them through that? So Brian Kaplan, who plays Luke, the field hand, for example, I saw a film he did. I saw some other work. I talked to him and then he came into audition and we spent like, geez, two or three hours together. We'd read a scene. We'd talk about it. We'd read a scene again. We'd trade parts. He, you know, I said, what other scene do you want to do? Do you want to do a scene from some whole other film? I don't care anything. And at the end of that three hours, I broke the biggest rule of all. At the end of those three hours, I said, so do you want to play this part? And he said, yes. And I said, you got it. It's yours. Because I had power to do that. Because That's play. a decent thing to do, Perry. It's, it's just decent. It's the way audition should be. And the person who taught me that was the great Blake Edwards, who, who met me for a part I did in a movie called Switch. Switch. I remember Switch. Yeah. yeah. And I came in ready to audition for him. And I met him. And we talked for about an hour, he and I. And at the end of the hour, I said, well, great. Thanks, Barry. Good to meet you. And I said, don't you want me to read? 
And he said, no, I don't need you to read. I know you know how to act. I wanted to meet you and see who you were to see if you'll fit with the movie we're making and, mm-hmm. and the people we're working with. I don't need you to, to read lines for me. Now, I thought, man, that's, that's the right way to do it, you know? Like so instead of doing that, if, we read, if you read a scene and then you talk and then you read it again and you talk and then, then maybe you switch the parts and read it again, after a while, the actor relaxes and then you get to see really what they can accomplish, what they can yeah. do. But the cattle ranch you had, did you, did you film the film on your cattle ranch or was that? Yes, I did. You did. That's my ranch. It's beautiful was, land. Wow. Well, it's beautiful. We, we worked. It is beautiful, but it's really beautiful in the spring and the spring. It's the most beautiful place I've ever seen. But these days, spring lasts about two weeks up there. Yeah. It's over. <laughs> yeah. The rest of the time in the, in the summer, it's dry and dusty and, and like you see in the film. And, and one of the many reasons that we, just had to shoot that film in black and white is when you shoot that ranch even in the dead of summer in color it's beautiful and we didn't want it to be beautiful we wanted it to be uh you know um what's the great grapes of wrath that's what we want of wrath right grapes of wrath also because your character a better example is hud oh hud yeah hud's a good film yeah, but your character. I mean, because he was he was in and out of the past, and it was almost like a he was his mind was in black and white to some degree. Yes, yeah, that's true. And it's an old fashioned movie. I want that film. I wanted that film to look like a film you might have seen in the fifties or sixties. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, not a modern film. I mean, there's so many things about modern films I do not like. I hate the jagged rushed editing of modern films the mm-hmm. cut, 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 all over the place and the camera shaking you know they have people on the set who whose job is to shake the camera now clint eastwood who's old-fashioned says that's that's bad filmmaking yeah, Taking yeah. the camera is bad filmmaking cutting eastwood does it eastwood makes old-fashioned movies often they're really good movies sometimes yeah. they're not but he has the courage to fail, like Margot Robbie. That's so, so important. Yeah. You know? yeah, let me tell you something Clint Eastwood said, if I have time to do it. I, and I don't know him. I just read this in a quote. But I was trying to figure out how I wanted to proceed as a director on this film. I knew I was going to get that chance and probably that only that one chance to direct something. And I was trying to think. And I read all this advice from wonderful directors about working and directing and how you do it. And then I read something by Clint Eastwood. He said, when I'm directing, I try to be the director I want to have when I'm acting. And I yeah. thought, oh, my God, I know who that is. Mm-hmm. I know exactly who I want to have when I'm acting. A guy who shuts up and leaves me alone unless I'm in trouble. Yeah. And so that's how I tried to proceed on, on the divide. I, I said very little to my actors. I was positive I had the right people. And I didn't mess with them. I left them alone to do their work because they knew how to do it. And I did the same thing with myself. I just let myself, I, by that point, by the time we'd started shooting, I knew exactly who old Sam was. And uh, some of the greatest fun I've ever had in my life was showing that film in audiences in small towns, not big ones, little towns, rural towns, where people really understand those characters. Yeah. Are you going to write a book about your career? Because I, I, if so, I want to sign copy, I'll tell you. Ah, thanks. Well, if I do... I'll give you a signed copy. I have the title, but I don't think I'll ever write it. And uh, 
And I think it's just, you know, people have said they wanted me to write a book, but they always want me to, um, to put in salacious stuff. And I'm just not going to do that. Yeah. You know, or negative stuff. Yeah. And I'm not going to do it. So it, it precludes writing it. You know, I'm not going to tell the bad truths. I'm not going to tell the, the, uh, the, the down and dirty stuff. I'm just not going to do it. That's not, but that's not you. And I get it, but there's so much about you. You know how, how many questions I have left over and I'm like, I could do a complete other episode with you. Let's do it again sometime. What the hell? (laughs) We should. You want to hear my title? What is it? If I write an autobiography, when I was a kid, I worked in summer stock in Nantucket, Massachusetts, a couple of different summers. And this theater, this little theater where we were doing shows in rap, right? So you do a different play every week. Very hard work and very rushed work. And upstage, like almost every theater, there's something called the cyclorama. Do you know what that is, the cyclorama? It's a big blue screen. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Right. whole upside and the sides. Mm-hmm. The stage left, stage right. right. It has a sky blue Color. Uh, yeah. hanging tarp. Mm-hmm. So that when you have sets and you have a window or anything, it looks like the sky is out there, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what people call it. They call it the sky, not the cyclorama. They call it the sky. Backstage, right from where you, you normally almost always made your entrance on stage in this little theater was a little sign. You don't want to bump that blue screen because it would wobble and it would kill the effect of right. that being the sky. So there's a sign backstage right as you walked on stage that said, please don't touch the sky. And that's the title of my autobiography, if I ever write one. I love it. Yeah, I like that too. I think that's a good title. I love it. And Perry, I'm going to keep harassing you about it because I just think you have a great story to tell. Because you do. You have a great life. So I, I, I can't write it because people want what what the every every possible editor has talked to me about it. several of said please tell us these stories but they always want me to tell stuff i'm not telling i'm i was taught as a young man to be a gentleman and i'm gonna die being a gentleman if even if it means no book well that's not gonna be for a while and i hope to see you on the screen again i know you said you're kind of semi-retired but i hope no 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 i am retired i quit you did. I figured the divide is i'm gonna do tom brady but do it right i'm gonna quit while i'm on top in my mind, the divide is the best I've ever done. I'll never have more fun doing something. And I thought that's perfect time to hang it up. Quit right there. Do something else. Okay. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I was definitely going to call you and we're going to do this like once again, because I have so much more I've got to talk yeah. to you about. I love it. Just but thanks again. I appreciate it so much. Thanks, Teddy. Talk to you soon. Thanks to the marvelous Perry King for joining me here on Hollywood Obsessed. If you enjoyed listening to our conversation, make sure to tap follow on your phone, iPad, or computer screen so that you don't miss any new episodes. I promise I've got many more exciting interviews coming your way with some of the fascinating people that I've gotten to know while living and working here in the heart of Hollywood. Until next time, this is your host, Tony Miros. See you on the next episode of Hollywood Obsessed. Thanks for joining us this week on Hollywood Obsessed. Make sure to visit our Facebook page, Hollywood Obsessed Podcast, where you can subscribe to the show so you'll never miss a single episode. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in every other Monday for our next episode. That's a wrap. <laughs>